AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of security trends and news. Full video of this program can be found on YouTube by searching for AT&T Threat Track. Hey Matt, how are you doing? I, I heard you had a good story about uh, Golpro.net uh, targeting basically RDP servers. Yeah, so this one is kind of interesting. Um, they're calling it Gold Brute. I'm not really sure why Gold, but Brute is because they are brute forcing RDP servers. Mm -hmm. um, this research was done by a guy from Morpheus Labs. Okay. And uh, what they found is that mm -hmm. there's a botnet um, targeting about 1.5 million different RDP servers. Wow. Um, it turns out there's more RDP servers than that, uh, but the way that it's making its target lists, I guess it's not accounting for all of them. Mm -hmm. the, um, the bot's written in Java, and the, the interesting thing about it is that the way that it, it brute forces is that instead of trying to, you got one endpoint that's you know, part of your botnet, instead of trying a whole bunch of passwords from one endpoint, mm -hmm. what it's doing is spreading out the work amongst all the members. So okay. one endpoint will try a single username and password. Another endpoint will try a different username and password. By doing that, um, they can get past any sort of rate limiting or checks to say, hey, is, is one IP address trying yeah. a bunch of passwords? Because no, in, in fact, they're all different IPs trying different passwords. Yeah. So over time, they may still break into these, these RDP endpoints, which is, which is kind of different. Um, another thing that's kind of weird about it that wasn't clear to me from the research is that the, the malware itself is a jar file. Um, but it's, it's running something called bitcoin.dll, which is not a DLL, mm -hmm. and apparently doesn't have anything to do with Bitcoin. Yeah. So I'm not sure what's up with that. But right now, it just seems to be building a large botnet of, um, of RDP vulnerable devices. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a wake up call. If somebody is already not hardened any of the RDP servers, this is the time to do it because we have other vulnerability going around, which is BlueKeep. In the last couple of weeks, we've heard a lot about this BlueKeep vulnerability. Yeah. Very recent RDP vulnerability in Windows boxes is not being used here. Yeah. So it should be important to, sh to make the difference because even though this is a RDP botnet and it is, you know, building a large, you know, botnet mm -hmm. that it's not targeting that, that it's specific. not using that vulnerability. Okay. If it were, it would probably be much more effective than it wouldn't have to try any passwords. Mm -hmm. um, but at this point, it is not doing that. Okay. Well, what's interesting about that is that uh, for BlueKeep, if the target RDP server has network-level authentication enabled, then that does require the attacker to have some kind of valid credential in order to, you know, try to work with that issue. So one of the things I was wondering about is whether or not this brute force kind of enumeration of RDP servers out there getting some kind of valid credential out there is sort of a prelude to a secondary phase, which is going to be driving BlueKeep, but also having an ability to get around that uh, network-level authentication issue. Good point. I think so. Actually, I was also looking at this. Uh, there's one interesting fact I noticed. Uh, already you explained a little bit about that. Uh, this botnet basically, it builds up to 80 vulnerable systems with RDP port open. Once I, I believe once it's, it gets to that number, then and there actually it starts the starting the brute forcing. Yep. Like as you said, you know, host name, username, and password. Like each one actually tries once. Basically, even though one system is trying, they're actually trying eight, 80 different password combinations. Okay. So that, that's kind of interesting. I felt you know, like you said, they wanna they want to beat the rate limiting as well as stay below the radar so that uh, it's not tripping any security alerts. Right, that's true. Yeah. So, I mean, if you want to detect it, it looks like they're only using one C2 server and they're mm -hmm. connecting over port 8333, which yeah. should be pretty unique 
-hmm. And if you're looking at your environment, you'll probably find this fairly quick. Mm -hmm. The other thing is, um, if you're exposing RDP to the internet, now is definitely a time. Uh, if BlueKeep wasn't enough to convince you to, to change your configuration, yeah. this botnet probably should be. Yeah. Uh, so time to get your RDP off the internet. Definitely yeah. rethink that practice. Yeah. yeah. Also, if you see any Bitcoin.dll, that's a giveaway in this case? I think so, okay. yeah. I mean, it doesn't seem like a very common file name to have, yeah. but especially if you find something that claims to be a DLL and is actually a jar file, yeah. you should definitely you you should know, perk up your ears. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Matt. Sure thing, guys. I think in general, it's a good idea for people to know what ports they're exposing to the internet, and that goes for things beyond RDP. Uh, if they have the knowledge to scan their own network or maybe check Shodan to see what ports are exposed on their IP, it's a good idea in general, and to do it repeatedly over time to see if anything has changed. So Mike, we know that when people have a technical support question they don't have the answer to, the first place they'll go is most likely Google. But it sounds like uh, there are some tech support scams that people will be able to accidentally end up at from Google search results. What can you tell us? Yeah, so there was a, a story that came out uh, about uh, some malicious ads that made their way into the Google ad network uh, that, depending upon what the user was searching for, would actually um, serve up malicious ads. And depending upon um, how often that they had searched for that and how often uh, they had been served that ad, um, there was actually a rate limit that would um, when they clicked on the ad, either take them to the actual legitimate website or present them with a tech support scam informing them that their machine was infected with some sort of an issue and that they needed to call a phone number in order to you know, help resolve that, that problem. If the search result comes back with what looks like vague information that doesn't necessarily pertain to what you're looking at, Maybe that's a hint that what you've got is something that's really just a scam, starting to trying to prey on your, your fear of, of the unknown. What was really interesting about this campaign was that it would look at the endpoint and determine based on um, you know, a number of vectors uh, in whatever this malicious actor's algorithm were, whether or not to bypass that, that opportunity to try and solicit that user or to redirect them to the malicious uh, scam, and if they had done it more than once or twice in a day, it would actually not allow them to get presented with the uh, scam any longer. So it made it really challenging to identify which ads were serving up malicious content because they weren't always doing it. That's really interesting. That reminds me a lot of the old, um, it's a tactic used back in the, the days of, of when exploit kits were really big. Um, there was something called a traffic direction service. And I think what you could do is you could, as an attacker, pay into that and you get a certain percentage of redirections. So like if you paid a certain amount, you'd get 5% of total redirections into this traffic direction service. Mm -hmm. And ad the rest clicks. would go to like... Similar to ad clicks. You kind of like ad clicks, but yeah. here, you know, the other options would be you would be sent to like... Uh, I don't know, some sort of weight loss spam or some sort of other pharmaceutical spam, mm -hmm. but a certain percentage, if you paid into it, would get you to the, the uh, exploit kit. Do uh, you think it's intentional that it's like an anti-analysis method, that after the first click through, you're not allowed to get back there, or is it more of a, mo a financial motivation that it's not worth the return? Tough to say. Okay. Uh, anything that keeps your malicious campaign going on longer is going to theoretically net the threat actor you know, greater returns. But what I do find interesting is that um, given today's ad ecosystem and the amount of analytics that 
you can create around ads and the effectiveness of those ads that the attackers can literally use those same analytics that advertisers use to determine the effectiveness of a particular ad and actually increase the effectiveness of it over time. Mm -hmm. That's something. Because then you can pick and choose the kind of people that you think are most likely to be to fall for a tech support scam. Exactly. This is interesting because it kind of hits home with me. I know I've got relatives and parents who would go looking for solutions to their problems in Google and might accidentally fall into one of these scams. An elderly member of my family recently fell for one of these scams and they asked her to go get a Google Play card yep. and read them the number for the Google Play card. Um, and that's how they you know, got the couple hundred dollars that they wanted um, you know, at that time. And she wised up eventually, but you know, it was after um, having made that mistake. Yep. So anytime things seem strange like that, it's a dead giveaway that you're in the middle of a tech support scam. Uh, and there's some really great uh, guidance out there to help identify and avoid these types of scam, uh, scams uh, on the FTC.gov website. And if you go to www.consumer.ftc.gov, uh, they have an article out there that goes over a lot of the indications, a lot of the types of payment methods that they'll try to solicit you to using. Uh, and it's really a great way to you know, uh, help not only family members, but also you know, internal users um, identify and avoid these kinds of scams. Well, thanks for bringing us that story. Thank you, Mike. Even if you're trying to follow a URL in the Google searches, try to hover on the link and see whether it's really saying something, you know, related to a reputed company or not. Anything which seems to be not too good to be true is probably not true. So, Ganesh, I heard that, uh, you did some uh, research into the hidden wasp malware recently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll little talk about a little bit. Um, this came out two weeks ago, Mike, uh, by one of the researchers at Intuzer. It's mm -hmm. a new blog. I think they did a um, tremendous job in analyzing this malware. The primary thing is it targets Linux-based servers and systems. Um, most of the Linux-based IoT malware, they try to tend to involving some sort of DDoS activities or maybe crypto mining. Okay. But in this case, what this Eden Wasp is doing is it's really targeted of the Linux systems. In the sense, they know which servers to, which systems to pick. They do a heavy reconnaissance effort and then uh, they get onto it some, in some sort of way, you know, basically some brute force they found or some vulnerability, they get onto the systems. Once they are into uh, one of these uh, systems, what they do have is they have a cell script, like a batch script of thing. Sure. And this, uh, this uh, script has three components. I believe uh, rootkit, and they have um, a Trojan, basically to propagate to wherever they want to go, and a deployment script. Uh, the script, first of all, sets up some parameters, basically setting up the environmental variables, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, it also sets up uh, some aliases. Also, it, it sets up a SFTP password with a hard-coded password. Okay. So it uses that hard-coded password to get on and get out any time it wants to get on. Oh, so you're saying they, they add a brand new user to SFTP, so if you chose to get back in the box and push some new malware when your old one was removed, yeah. you can still do that. You Got can it. still do that. Once it has, what it does is it tries to cover that by removing, of course, um, removing that maybe nulling at those uh, security locks. Yep. But it still has those um, persistence mechanism. 
It combines a lot of the known tactics we've seen with uh, IoT botnets like Mirai with a bunch of other malware techniques we've seen with more targeted stuff. That's kind of a first phase. Once it's successful with that one, what it does is it goes to the external C2 IP and domain and tries to get the uh, some sort of tarball downloaded to those systems. Mm -hmm. That's based on the based on you know what, what kind of architecture it has, like 32-bit or 62-bit. Based on it, gets this specific tarball, it explodes it. And that's how it tries to get the rootkit capability to the one of the one of the functions like LD underbar preload. That's where actually sure yeah that's a common trick to. yeah that's a common trick. It's the first one that I'm personally aware of that uses a rootkit in the way that it does. Uh, while doing this analysis, uh, the researcher actually found some reference to one of the world root rootkits named Azazel. I think it has uh, similar capabilities. The way they're showing is, uh, if you if you look at the script, uh, the bash script, it has one alias and parameter saying I'm hidden. So I'm hidden basically, they're saying, you know, whenever they're trying to calculate a recall, I mean, callback, they're using that alias to I'm hidden mm -hmm. to run the script. Okay. Uh, those are the key points. Um, this is how it works. I think it I felt really interesting because they're targeting the specific Linux servers and systems mm -hmm. to stay hidden. Once they de decide they can do any sort of um, thing they want to do. So when you say specific systems, I mean, what's the targeting uh, criteria that they're using? Uh, that That's not clear, but the way they're doing is they know they're doing heavy reconnaissance before getting into these systems. So they may scan a large number, and even though the, de the devices they find are vulnerable, yeah. they may not even pursue them based they, on some... Some criteria, okay. we don't know that. Huh. But even though even they own those systems, they're not engaging any sort of DDoS or typical crypto mining activities. Okay, interesting. So it's still developing analysis, uh, but uh, even though uh, in our analysis, uh, we're not seeing that much activity, but still it's something new to uh, keep and tag, you know, the changing tactics. Mm -hmm. So that's well, a one, of the, one of the things I read about this was that there was uh, some intelligence based on kind of what was being seen that this malware was actually being used to um, target previously infected systems um, of other pieces of malware. Um, that they may have borrowed code from, or that it was really uh, a very, very focused uh, kind of uh, target, you know, with a lot of, uh, um, you know, reconnaissance having been performed on those systems before being um, targeted for infection, uh, which is kind of the assertion behind their uh, activity rates being as low as have been mm -hmm. seen across the Internet. So then what's the objective? I mean, if they are targeting, they have something in mind. Uh, the objective, do not know at this point. Okay. Yeah, but uh, we'll, we'll be we'll be watching this. Sure. The best production is uh, keep up to date with all the security patches. Uh, it seems to be using a number of potential techniques to compromise machines, and I wouldn't recommend that you focus on any one over the others, as long as you keep your systems up to date with the latest patches that are applying to them, you should be fine. All right, Ganesh, let's take a look at this week's internet weather. So for the top 10 most probed ports, the top three have not changed since last week. Mm -hmm. At 23 TCP, that's Telnet, 445 is SMB, and 22 is SSH. 
probably a combination of IoT botnets and those scanning for the same old Samba bugs we've been looking at for two years now. Yeah. Uh, not a lot of surprises there. 8089 is up by three spots. I think I've identified that one as most likely related to Splunk, although there's a very good possibility it could be any other web-based um, vulnerability as well. That's um, interesting. Things in the 8000 series, 8080, 8081, tend to be web-related. Mm -hmm. So whatever's sitting there, my, my bet is that it's, it's either that or it's, it's also related to Splunk. Uh, 80 ICMP is ping. 3389 is RDP, which is down one, still in the top. Mm -hmm. um, interesting to see you know, how that one moves, especially given one, Blue Keep, which is getting closer and closer to being a widespread issue, I think. And, the, and your story. And the botnet that we talked about. Um, Goldbrute. Goldbrute. Uh, 81 TCP is another alternate web port. Mm -hmm. 5555 is Android Remote Debug Bridge. 8545 is related to um, Ethereum. Yep. And 80 TCP is plain old web. So the top 10 most sources probing for this week, again, this is individual endpoints and not volume. Mm -hmm. uh, 445 and 23 are at the top, no change. Uh, 80 TCP is up one slot, 8080 falling, that one in fourth place. 5555, still Android debug bridge, ping. 1433 is MS SQL. 5431 is UPnP, particular to Broadcom devices, I think. Mm -hmm. 65529 is a mystery port, which I think Stan was covering last week. Okay. I'll have a slide for that as well. And 81 TCP is another web port. So 445 has not changed all that much. I think the last time I was on the show, there was that peak you can see that goes up to around 80,000 scan sources per hour. Mm -hmm. I had expected it to trend upwards from there, but it seems like it was just uh, an interesting fluke. Okay. So thankfully it hasn't gotten much worse. That's good news. Yep, 8089 is continuing to be a target. It's still in the top 10. Um, there was an exploit scenario that I talked about last time I was on the show. Uh, involving the Splunk Universal Forwarder mm -hmm. and the ability to hijack it. Um, the top sources continue to be in the United States. Uh, this is 90 days on 65.530, which is something that I also covered last time. Um, it's interesting that we're seeing a lot of mystery ports that are TCP in the 65.53 something range. Okay. I'm not positive that they're all tied together, um, mm -hmm. but it seems certainly interesting to see that. Um, Hard to say what this particular port is tied to. There was a backdoor from 2002 called Windows Mite. Uh, mm -hmm. There's something called TCP Crypt as well, but I really haven't been able to prove it out one way or the other. Okay. Now this 65529 has appeared in the last couple weeks as well. And it's not really clear what's being scanned for here, only that there is significant interest in this port. Um, I tried to contrast and compare the scanning on that port with some similarly numbered ports from previous weeks. So I tried to overlay all three of these That's together good. to see if there was some yeah. sort of shifting population. Like, they're all so close. Um, and I think I could show that the two populations for 65533 and 65530 mm -hmm. might be the same population that just been retasked. Okay. But if you throw in that third one, 65529, in the mix, it doesn't seem to affect it at all. I mean, there's, there's a slight shift over here. You can see those two are definitely yeah. peaking at the same exact time. You can see there's... There's some activity that's correlated there, uh, but the addition on top of the um, of 65.529, I'm not convinced yet that that's the same population being divvied up. So what this means, I still don't know. Okay. Um, but I, I kind of wanted to put them all in context because the similarity of the port numbers to me sounded like they had to be related. 
um, but I don't think we've proven it yet. For the first two ports, it seems to be scanning, scanners to, seems to be coming from Asia-Pac region, but uh, the, for the, the third mystery port, it's still being under investigation. So just one, one interesting is, I mean, it's been related. Before the first port tapering up to shifting out to another port, there was a big spike for um, the last one, 65529, which yeah. is a mystery port. And it's huge, too. Yeah, that's right? huge. So somebody was interested in it. Yeah. Um, and this is scan flows. Yeah. So it could be that there was a single source at that time that, that was contribute. scanning heavily for it yeah. um, as some sort of precursor, testing the waters. Um, but whatever scan is going on now has really not made it to those heights clearly. So again, something else to keep our eyes on uh, in the coming weeks. But this really cool graph, interesting graph. Thanks yeah. for putting this up. Yeah, I figured it would help put things in context. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Matt. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.